Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Darian Taylor moved to Zimbabwe at an exciting time. It was the 1980s, just after liberation and the end of white rule. New Zimbabwean flag rises as the 50th independent nation of Africa is born. She moved to a rural part of the country, almost completely disconnected from the rest of the world. You know, there was one telephone in the headmaster's office that I don't think I ever used the entire four years I was there. Darian enjoyed the dynamism and the sense of possibility that existed, and she felt good about her work. She was teaching English to students at a small Catholic mission school. And I was really able to help a lot of students get their their English credit and then go on to university, and everything looked kind of amazing, but then AIDS hit. Darian had first heard about AIDS when she was a graduate student at Cornell, when it was associated mainly with gay men. You know, because I was all tuned into postmodern theory, I remember thinking, as academic people often do, not very personally, but, you know, like, oh, what an amazing postmodern disease, you know. Even as concern about AIDS spread, Darian wasn't worried. She was living in Zimbabwe, and everyone knew that AIDS was only a problem in Central Africa. There was this stupid sense of safety, like, oh, no, it's not in Southern Africa. Of course, that was totally wrong. HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, had been creeping through Zimbabwe for years. And all of a sudden, people around Darien began to get sick. A teacher at her school quit halfway through the school year with no explanation. Went to visit her at her house and, you know, she was a skeleton. Like, she she had lost so much weight from HIV and she was obviously very, very sick. Darian had been seeing a writer in Harare off and on, and one day, she found out that he had died. He was young and healthy. It had to have been AIDS. And then Darian remembered that she had had an unexplained illness a while back. She decided to get tested. I went into Harare, which was, you know, seven hours away by by bus, and got tested, and a letter came to me 
doctor wrote to me and said I was I was positive and I thought okay well you know I have to get home like I didn't know anything I thought I was going to get a cold and die it was like sickening oh my god like I just remember being nauseated for months just with this sickening realization about what was happening when Darian found out she had HIV there was no way to treat the virus Almost everyone, including Darian, thought AIDS was a death sentence. But over the next decade, Darian, like thousands of other HIV-positive people, would fight for her life. It wasn't just a fight against a virus. It was a fight against a system that didn't care if people like her lived or died. The world isn't in the middle of a pandemic. It's in the middle of two. Just in the past year, AIDS has killed almost a million people. It's a disease that can strike anyone, but the brunt of the pain is borne by our most vulnerable communities. Thousands of Canadians have died from this virus, but so many people have found ways to live too. For most Canadians, AIDS is long forgotten, a relic from the past, but it shouldn't be. What it taught us could be the key to fighting that other pandemic. I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a CanadaLand supporter. So, from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. 
This is a limited time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to CanadaLand.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Kaposi's sarcoma is a rare malignant tumor of the skin. It's normally an old man's disease. There might be 100 cases a year in the United States, and 80% of those affect men over 50. However, in the last year and a half, there's been a dramatic upswing in the number of cases of Kaposi's sarcoma, and they've been appearing mostly in young men in big American cities. The first reports were baffling. On June 5, 1981, the Centers for Disease Control published an article about five men in Los Angeles who had all come down with an incredibly rare form of pneumonia. That same day, a doctor in New York called the CDC. A cluster of gay men had another incredibly rare disease, a skin cancer known as Kaposi sarcoma. Within days, doctors were reporting similar cases all throughout the U.S. It went by many different names at first. The gay plague, the gay cancer, gay-related immune deficiency. By the next year, the world would finally settle on a name. Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, or AIDS. What started out as a few dozen strange cases would eventually spread to 75 million people. 35 million would die. By some estimates, it's the worst pandemic since the Black Death. Here's what it was like to live with AIDS for some in the 1980s and 90s. The first man you're about to hear from is Jim Black, speaking in No Sad Songs, one of the first documentaries about the AIDS crisis. The second man is Kevin Brown, a founder of BC People with AIDS. The the weight loss is dramatic. About a pound and a half to two pounds a week I'm losing. It wreaks havoc with my wardrobe because I don't really have anything that fits me anymore. I came down with pneumocystis pneumonia. The symptoms were a shortness of breath. Uh, I started having fevers. There were night sweats and during the evening. My brother's family took it well, apparently, or so I thought, when I first told them. But I found out the other day that um, from here on in, I no longer exist in the family. They want to have nothing to do with me. They want me to stay away from their children. We know that what I have is killing me. My feeling is that I have to have a chance to explore every opportunity to save my life. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding the Canadian government has denied me that opportunity. Jim Black died shortly after the release of No Sad Songs in 1986. Kevin Brown died at the age of 39 in 1989. AIDS is not a gay disease, but at the outset, gay men were some of the most visible people with the illness. In the decades before AIDS, gays and lesbians in Canada publicly organized and fought for recognition in ways that they never had before. So when the plague came in the 1980s, they already knew that the powers that be didn't care about them. It was up to them to save themselves. The first gay organization in Canada was founded in Toronto in 1968, a year before the Stonewall Uprising in New York. The University of Toronto Homophile Association was just the first of many groups that would pop up over the next few years in the country. There was the Community Homophile Association of Toronto, the Gay Alliance Towards Equality, the Vancouver Gay Liberation Front, Gays of Ottawa, and so many others. 
Many of these groups were formed by young radicals united by the ideas of gay liberation. They didn't want to assimilate into straight, mainstream society. Instead, they wanted to stand apart and build something from the ground up. In 1971, the body politic started publishing in Toronto. The magazine was lewd, leftist, and espoused a radically liberated sexuality. It would go on to be one of the most influential gay magazines in the world. Gary Kinsman was a young man growing up in Toronto at the time. He found gay liberation through the radical left. I guess in the late, very late 60s, I sort of started to sort of radicalize in a sort of cerebral way. I read Fidel Castro and I became more radical. Then I went to York University and got involved with some left groups there. And around the same time sort of came out and got involved in the gay movement. During the 1970s, gay activists won a number of battles. They got an anti-discrimination ordinance passed by Toronto City Hall. They waged a public campaign against the Toronto Star for refusing to print ads aimed at gays and lesbians. And more people were coming out and living openly than ever before. But in 1977, Emmanuel Jacques, a 12-year-old boy, was raped and murdered by three men. Anger at such a revolting crime was directed at the whole of Toronto's gay community. And it was in that atmosphere that the Body Politic published a reported feature that portrayed relationships between adult men and boys in a sympathetic light. That article set off a firestorm. The Toronto police raided the Body Politic offices, arresting three members of the collective and taking with them information about every person who subscribed. The cops now had a list of gay men and women in the city. But the community mobilized. They even got the newly elected mayor, John Sewell, on their side. Here he is speaking at a Freedom of the Press rally on January 3rd, 1979. Charges against some sectors of the gay community, such as the body politic and the barracks, create the impression to the public that all gays are on trial and that it is illegal to be gay. As we all know, it's not. The body politic would eventually be vindicated in the courts, but the fight against the Toronto police had just begun. Harassment and beating by cops was commonplace, and the gay community began to join up with other communities like Black and South Asian Torontonians who were also subject to police violence. In 1980, John Sewell lost his re-election bid. For the police, this meant open season on gays and lesbians. A few months later, on February 5, 1981, the Toronto police raided four gay bathhouses simultaneously and arrested a little under 300 men. Toronto police rounded up 286 men in the largest mass arrest in Canada since the imposition of the War Measures Act in 1970. The men were owners and patrons of four Toronto steam baths frequented by homosexuals. Toronto's gay community wasn't going to take this sitting down. They immediately mobilized. Here's Gary Kinsman again. I mean, the response to the, the bath raids in February 1981 is quite massive. They immediately hit the streets. No more raids! No more raids! No more... The very next day, 3,000 people staged a mass protest. And they fought back in other ways, too. John Kozachenko used to go to the Richmond Street Club, one of the bathhouses that was raided. I had been there the night before the bath raids occurred. 
At the time, we were quite angry. I mean, we were quite, we were very shocked. Gay men wanted to file reports against the police officers that had harassed them, but they would have to have the names and badge numbers of the specific cops, information that wasn't readily available. But John's mother? Well, she happened to be dating a cop in 52 Division. I went into his home. I used to go clean his place if my mother wasn't uh, able to at the time he, you know, when he was gone. And he had this list of all police officers, badge numbers and names, so you could cross-reference them. He gave them to his friend who worked at the Toronto City Hall archives. So anyways, these, these documents uh, helped people if they want to uh, file a complaint against the police because you needed the, both the name and the badge number of the officer. The Church Street Uprising mobilized gay men and women who had never been political before. What the Bath Raids did was it created an opportunity where the activists came together with larger numbers of people who were hanging out in the baths and going to the bars. Uh, Lots more street people were involved, lots more sort of everyday working class people got involved. The Right to Privacy Committee was formed to help fight for the people arrested. It had 1,500 people at its first meeting and instantly became the biggest gay organization in the country. Numerous other organizations would form in the aftermath. The Toronto Gay Community Council, the Lesbian Organization of Toronto, Lesbians Against the Right. And that summer, 1,500 people would gather in Grange Park to commemorate the Stonewall Uprising. It was the birth of modern-day pride in the city. So in some ways, 81 became a sort of explosion of the community. It was at the height of that community organizing that people would first start to hear about AIDS. Almost exactly a hundred years ago, HIV began its long, terrifying campaign against humanity. It likely started with a single person in Central Africa who got infected from an open wound while hunting a chimpanzee. From there, it would have spread slowly. But colonizers forced the creation of large cities overwhelmingly filled with working-age men. Prostitution was an inevitable side effect, so the virus spread quicker. Public health campaigns used dirty needles, so it spread quicker still. And when in 1960, the Democratic Republic of the Congo threw off its colonial oppressors, they didn't have enough professionals to immediately run the country. 4,500 Haitian teachers answered the call, and at least one of them became infected, and the virus made its way to the Western Hemisphere. In Haiti, it again started to spread, and again it started slow. But Haiti was ruled by a vicious dictatorship, and the man in charge of the secret police, Luckner Cambron, had a number of businesses on the side that made him wealthy. One of them was a plasma clinic from which he would siphon off the blood of poor Haitians. Those blood products were then sold around the world. They called him the Vampire of the Caribbean. And Haiti was a prime destination for sexual tourism, So HIV spread and spread and spread, until by 1981, a few dozen men were coming down with strange cancers and rare pneumonias. Gary Kinsman heard about what was then called the Gay Plague in the fall of 81. I remember that after the early media coverage, 
that my mother would always call me up to find out how I was doing. Um, and so it was obviously creating a lot of anxiety for her. Cases began to proliferate in the United States, and panic followed closely behind. There are two new epidemics sweeping across North America right now. One of them is a medical epidemic, a baffling new disease called acquired immune deficiency syndrome, better known as AIDS. And the other is an epidemic of fear. In some large U.S. cities, the fear is turning into general hysteria. People don't know what AIDS is, how it's contracted, or how it can be cured. By early 1983, few cases have been documented in Canada, but gay men in particular began to worry. In Toronto, over 300 people showed up to a forum about AIDS. There were two major reasons people were turning up. One was a real fear and concern for their own safety. If this was something that was affecting, you know, especially men in the gay community, are there things I need to know about it and, and things I need to do to protect myself? But they also worried that a disease associated with gay people would be an excuse to roll back all of their hard-won political victories. But now, all of a sudden, there's this new means of discrimination against people in the gay and lesbian communities. So there was a much broader sort of sense of community, a community consciousness that, like, this, even if it's not going to directly affect me, it's going to affect other people I know, and I need to do something about it. For gay Torontonians, the lessons of the last few years were clear. The government wasn't going to be there for them. If they wanted something done, they had to organize themselves. So out of that meeting, the AIDS Committee of Toronto was formed. And I was one of the first three employees of the AIDS Committee of Toronto. We had an office at that point in time. It was above Kentucky Fried Chicken at Church in Wellesley. Many people in positions of power thought we were expendable populations. And I'm not just talking about gay men here, but also Haitians, drug users, sex workers, other people who seemed to be being affected by AIDS. We were seen as expendable populations. There was no need to, to spend any time or attention on us. There was no major commitment of health funding by the Canadian government to address um, AIDS concerns. All there was when ACT was formed was some make-work project funding that was not even specifically designed to deal with the AIDS crisis. We were basically abandoned, and that's why groups like ACT were formed. They came out of our communities to try to provide support and education and to work against discrimination. They quickly got to work. At that time, little was known about AIDS, so gathering information and then educating people was the first order of business. You have people starting to talk about safe sex, like how can we have sex in the context of an epidemic? Those ideas about safe sex weren't coming from public health authorities. It was gay men themselves who were advocating condom use. And though the AIDS Committee of Toronto is organized mostly by the gay community, they tried to reach out to the other communities who are labeled as, quote, high-risk groups. And even though that has a specific meaning in epidemiological discourse, that actually was used to facilitate discrimination against people in our communities and against Haitians and against injection drug users, against sex workers, against many other groups of people as well. In 1983, the Red Cross banned blood donations from gay men and Haitians, regardless of their sexual practices. Many Haitian Canadians were incensed. That is going to cut any social report, you know, any social relation between Haitian and Canadian. Because the people are going to be afraid about uh, the fact that any Haitian, you know, all the Haitians are, uh, uh, as community, you know, ill. 
I remember just answering the phones at the AIDS Committee of Toronto, getting phone calls on numerous occasions from people saying, I have a Haitian housekeeper. What should I do? And of course, our response was like, well, you should treat her nicely. And right, there's no problem, right? Solidarity, even when it came to an issue as deadly as AIDS, was difficult work. We tried to develop liaison work with the local Haitian group that we'd heard about in Toronto. It took me an awful long time to get the head of that group to actually come to a board meeting of the AIDS Committee of Toronto. And the board was dominated by, as I said before, um, more managerial and more uh, medical professional types. Um, so I spent all of this time and energy getting this person to come to the meeting. He was pretty reluctant at first and, you know, wasn't predisposed to wanting to support gay men or men who had sex with men. But I did convince him to come to the board meeting. And I have to say, I was quite offended by how people treated him. The Haitian representative was not really skilled in medical discourse, but did understand quite clearly that the Red Cross saying that Haitians couldn't donate blood was actually organizing racism and discrimination against people in the Haitian community. Unfortunately, though, the people on the board decided this was an opportunity to go after this person for not being properly educated in medical and epidemiological discourse. I mean, the person actually was grossly offended by what had happened, and I actually think people treated him in what I would describe as a racist fashion. Gary also remembers two waiters who came to an ACT meeting early on. Almost everyone else at that meeting was somehow involved in the medical profession. I had to point out that, like, the next time I went to the AIDS support group meeting, they did not come back, right? They felt like this wasn't a group for them. It was actually a group that was sort of much more dominated by medical professional discourse and practice. When Darian Taylor moved back from Zimbabwe to Ontario, she didn't have much hope. You know, I thought it was quite possible I was going to die very soon. Like, I didn't know anything about AIDS, right? Like, people with HIV were just so left behind. I'd stayed in touch with a number of people, you know, friends from Canada, but then I got back and here I was HIV positive and, you know, and not in good shape. And let me tell you, not a lot of my relationships from the past moved forward into the future. She soon ended up at an ACT meeting for women with AIDS. It was the first time she met HIV positive women in Canada. I think we all went in thinking it's going to be me, you know, a little Miss Normal or whatever we think of ourselves, right? Little Miss Normal, and there's going to be a bunch of prostitutes. And, you know, and I had like every every stereotype blaring in my mind. And, of course, you get to the group and it's just normal. They're all Little Miss Normals, even if they are prostitutes, you know, <laughs> sex workers. <laughs> It was good to be able to talk to other women, but something felt off. The women leading the group didn't have HIV themselves, and that didn't sit right with Darian. She remembers one of the people at the AIDS Committee of Toronto coming to her with a new campaign focused on women and AIDS. And I looked at it and I was like, I was so disappointed because it was basically just like how not to get HIV. And I'm like, well, this says nothing to me, right? Like, I've already got HIV. I want to know how to save my life. You know, like big time, I want to know how to save my life. Like that's all I'm thinking of. You know, and nobody, nobody was paying any attention to that. Many people living with AIDS felt the same way as Darian. 
And as they begin to organize and develop, they find that their needs are not being met within groups like the AIDS Committee of Toronto, which gets funding largely for public health-related projects. And public health is focused on, especially in this time period, is trying to protect the so-called general population uh, from the possible risk of infection of HIV once it's identified. So you actually do not have the needs of those people who are infected being put at the center of organizing within these first community-based AIDS organizations, aside from support for people who are sick or dying. So their survival, their treatment concerns really were not able to be addressed within groups like the AIDS Committee of Toronto. Not only were the concerns of people with HIV being ignored, governments, media, and the public increasingly just saw them as a threat. Here's a CBC forum on AIDS from the 1980s. Can you guarantee 100% that our children will not contact the disease at school, keeping in mind that elementary students share everything from tears to kisses, and yes, on occasion, even blood? People with AIDS were facing an impossible dilemma. They had a disease with no known cure, and it was likely to kill them. The government was doing next to nothing because the people affected were largely from groups that, frankly, society just didn't give a shit about. And the stigma and discrimination was just getting worse. But nowhere was it worse than in British Columbia. The premier at the time was Bill van der Zalm, who led a right-wing social credit government. And van der Zalm was more than happy to let people with AIDS die. And that's not an exaggeration. I'm quoting van der Zalm himself. During a provincial federal conference, he once turned to the deputy prime minister and asked what the feds were going to do about all this AIDS stuff. Quote, I was perfectly willing to let all those gay people die. In 1986, a group of HIV positive people decided to fight back. They started People with AIDS Vancouver and held the first ever AIDS protest in Canada in front of the B.C. legislature. Here's John Kozachenko again. It formed out of a meeting group that was being held in the cafeteria of St. Paul's Hospital for people who were HIV, fairly newly diagnosed. Most of us were newly diagnosed HIV at that time. But because of government funding, they couldn't really take political stances. So we formed a... uh, a coalition of persons with HIV themselves. We were on the steps of the legislature, only about a dozen of us from the Vancouver Persons with AIDS Coalition. That protest was the first of many in Canada. Over the next year, many people with AIDS decided that they were done dying in silence. They would take matters into their own hands. By 1987, hundreds of Canadians had died of AIDS. Most AIDS organizations subsisted on government funding, and many HIV-positive people didn't feel like these groups represented them. The time had come for a new radical approach. In New York City, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, better known as ACT UP, had formed in March and began to engage in demonstrations, blockades, and civil disobedience. And people in Toronto wanted to try to do something along similar lines. That is a group that would be focused around the direct needs and concerns of people living with AIDS and HIV, that would be concerned about treatment and their survival, and that was also willing to engage in direct action types of politics. That fall, AIDS Action Now was formed. The thing that I really liked about it was there was just, it was a room full of smart, capable, 
people. And it made me feel like it made me feel protected. It made me feel safe. AIDS Action Now was led by people with AIDS. They didn't take government money, and they were focused on one thing above all else, the survival of people with AIDS. And that meant treatment. AIDS itself doesn't kill you. It's the opportunistic infections that take advantage of your weakened immune system. And the worst of these is pneumocystis carini pneumonia. In the United States, a drug called aerosolized pentamidine was used to treat PCP pneumonia. And it helped people with AIDS stay alive, but it wasn't available in Canada. A placebo trial for the drug was going to take place at Toronto General Hospital. That meant half of the people in the trial would unknowingly not actually be getting the drug. In the design for that research that was going to be done at Toronto General, they described that there would be clinical endpoints for people in the study. That meant that they would die. And we found this totally unacceptable. Even though they knew the drug worked, they were willing to let people in Toronto take a placebo and die. So AIDS Action Now took to the streets. Three hundred people marched to Toronto General Hospital. Here's Tim McCaskill, one of the founders of AIDS Action Now, speaking at that first protest. It means is that 150 people who want the drug will not be able to receive it because they're receiving nothing. And because they're at high risk of coming down with PCP, we estimate that at least four of those people will die because of this experiment. If you didn't catch that, Tim was saying that four people were expected to die unnecessarily during this drug trial because they would be given the equivalent of sugar pills instead of a drug that was already known to save lives. AIDS Action Now saw that as tantamount to murder. The organizing, the protests, they eventually worked. The federal government was soon pressured into releasing the drug under a rarely used program. But in the meantime, AIDS Action Now took to smuggling the drug in from the U.S. We would take it across the border and people would actually um, organize basically underground aerosolized pentamidine clinics in Toronto. More and more HIV-positive people were fighting for their rights through protests and radical actions. In 1987, the B.C. government introduced a bill that would allow anyone with AIDS to be subject to quarantine. Here's John Kozachenko again. It was draconian. I mean, basically, the social credit right-wing government uh, has su suggested that they send us, round us up and send us all off to an island because of having HIV. So protesters began to confront Premier Bill Vanderzalm wherever he went. What you're talking about. When I was a kid and I had uh, chicken pox, I want to tell you there was a big sticker on my door and our whole house was quarantined. I don't know what these guys are talking about. At another protest at that same theater the next year, John was arrested for tripping the premier's wife. As they were going into the event, uh, uh, we were staging a die-in at the doorway where we lay down and uh, just, you know, having a die-in. So when uh, Vanderzam tripped over me and Lillian, his wife, fell. She let out a scream, but she wasn't hurt. John spent the night in prison. 
the activism also became more international. In 1989, the International AIDS Conference was being held in Montreal. AIDS Action Now teamed up with ACT UP New York and Reaction CETA, a Montreal-based group, to protest the event. John Kozachenko was there too, and so was Gary Kinsman. During the opening plenary, Gary thought they were just going to be protesting outside. So we thought there was going to be a demonstration outside, right? That's what we were organized for. And then when we get there, we see the ACT UP people just going through the doors. There was, you know, very little security. Uh, so, you know, a couple of hundred people got to take over the stage. It was absolutely incredible. Tim McCaskill took one of the mics and opened the conference on behalf of people living with AIDS and HIV. Gary Kinsman and other activists on stage unfurled a banner saying, Mulroney, you have left us to die. AIDS activists infiltrated the entire conference with forged press passes. They questioned panelists, disrupted sessions, and made their presence felt. Why is this commodity illegal? The medical professionals and bureaucrats had rarely before had to be confronted in this way by people with AIDS, the actual people whose lives were on the line. It just like turned the tables on everything. It like put the needs and concerns of people living with AIDS and HIV at the center of this conference, which would not have been otherwise. AIDS Action Now targeted pharmaceutical companies too. When Bristol-Myers refused to release a potentially life-saving drug, they blockaded their downtown Toronto offices. One of the mothers of a person who was AZT intolerant, who required DDI, also organized actions outside their office uh, for a long period of time, and eventually DDI was released. AIDS Action Now and other groups across Canada pushed for anonymous HIV testing and a national AIDS strategy. They fought for expanded access to drugs and fought back quarantine legislation in Ontario. They organized die-ins and occupations. They burned effigies and threw red paint. But above all, they gave people with AIDS a voice and a sense that they could make a difference. There's something very powerful about, you know, demonstration and sort of taking to the streets. And, uh, you know, especially when people are very stigmatized. The miraculous thing about all of this activism was that it appeared to be working. Many of the people living with AIDS and HIV actually knew more than their general practitioners did about AIDS and HIV because they were self-educating themselves and because knowledge about AIDS and HIV was being spread around both the PWA coalition type groups and the early AIDS treatment-based activist groups. People with AIDS were starting to live longer. There was this contradiction between what governments and the, and the pharmaceutical corporations and the medical elite was saying to people, which was basically there's, you know, you're not going to survive. And the knowledge that people had, especially coming out of the U.S. at that time, that there were treatments that could at least address some of the opportunistic infections that were killing people. Darian Taylor quickly became one of the faces of AIDS Action Now. The, the guys at AIDS Action Now, the guys and gals at AIDS Action Now were probably rubbing their hands in glee a little bit when I showed up because they were like, a woman with HIV? Oh, my God. Let's stick her in front of the, you know, let's stick her in front of an audience. Like, I, I was, like, on my soapbox immediately. 
Darien published the world's first ever anthology of writing by women with AIDS and helped found Voices of Positive Women, a group for HIV-positive women. But despite all of their work, Darien was sure that she wasn't going to make it. That whole time was a process of negotiating time through this lens of death. So I used to sort of negotiate my time kind of in six months, six month chunks. Even buying a winter coat was a major decision. Would she need it in six months? In a year? In two? And she closed herself off from sex and romance almost entirely. Is the emotional impact of want and desire and hope, is it wise to open that Pandora's box, right? Oh no, my, you know, my, my thought was no, it's better just to keep that all, all closed down. I had some sex with gay men who, you know, were sort of in the movement, but like, I think that was like, kind of, they were kind of like mercy fucks. And though the access to drugs that treated the opportunistic infections extended many people's lives, they didn't actually treat HIV. People still had AIDS. And by the early 1990s, death was everywhere. When people attended the steering committee meetings for AIDS Action Now, they'd often sit in the same seats. There came to be this point, especially in the early 1990s, where people were starting to die so that, like... Seats would be vacant, right? The, the seat that someone would have been sitting in would be vacant because they were no longer with us. Or they were in such health distress that they couldn't possibly be at the meeting. So that your life becomes in some ways defined by going to funeral after funeral after funeral. Around this time, Gary Kinsman moved to Atlantic Canada to teach. But he would come back in the summers and find out who had died while he was gone. It was always a long list. It's an incredible sadness, incredible anger, incredible rage, incredible mourning takes place. And this is really the period I most remember um, when I was in Toronto of going to memorial service and funeral after funeral. I think that part of it was also like we had this sort of experience that we were actually able to get people's lives to be better and to get people to live longer because we were we had some major success in getting access to the drugs and treatments that addressed the opportunistic infections that were actually killing people. So uh, for many of us, it was quite disconcerting that people started to die. But that was a quite devastating period when you sort of had this initial feeling that people were going to survive and it was possible to actually make AIDS into something that, you know, would it was a long-term chronic infection, but it could be manageable and people could survive it. That sort of ate away at that for a period of time. Some of the funerals were planned by people's homophobic family members and didn't represent the person who died at all. Others were turned into political expressions. Michael Smith was a close friend of Gary's and an important AIDS activist. When he died in 1991, his funeral ended with a march. Doug Wilson was one of the founders of AIDS Action Now. He died in hospital, and his friends, they figured out a way to get the ambulance, the funeral home, I'm not exactly sure, to bring his body back to his apartment. And instead of a funeral, he had a house party with his body lying in the bedroom. You know, I think his house probably had tons of booze, but it was kind of a boozy party, and... 
Doug was very vain about his blue eyes, and, and so, you know, he was dressed in his famous blue corduroy shirt that made his eyes look so nice. I don't even know if his eyes were open. I think they probably weren't. By the mid-1990s, AIDS activists were still fighting, but exhaustion was starting to set in. So many people had died, and change seemed like such a long way off. In 1996, the International AIDS Conference was being held in Vancouver. Darian Taylor went to that conference, and she had no idea what was to come. In spite of the fact that people in AIDS Action Now and, you know, a lot of other people too were very tight with researchers and scientists and kind of knew what was coming down the pipeline, we were completely surprised when we got to Vancouver in 1996 and heard about the success of the combination therapies. As we expected with this triple regimen, we put out the fire in the sense that when we look in the, in the blood for evidence of viral replication, we cannot find it. Researchers announced a new treatment regimen that almost completely eliminated HIV from people's systems. The cocktail of three drugs would be life-saving. I remember I got to the airport and I saw one of the funders from the federal AIDS program in the airport. And I said to her, and she always laughs and and reminds me, I said to her, we can all close up shop and go home now. And that was what I felt. I felt, I, I felt immediately like this was, like this was a game changer. AIDS activists in Canada, the U.S., and the rest of the world had shifted the priorities of governments and medical practitioners to actually get the treatment cocktail. It was a victory, a major victory. But so many people had to die before it happened. John Kozachenko, the Toronto and Vancouver activist you've heard throughout this episode, is the only surviving co-founder of PWA Vancouver, that group that held the first AIDS protest in Canada. Tim McCaskill, one of the co-founders of AIDS Action Now, is still alive and well. But so many of his fellow activists and community members are dead. Michael Lynch, George Smith, Michael Smith, Doug Wilson, James Thatcher, Alan Dewar, James McPhee, Tony Viggers, Ross Fletcher, Graham Campbell, Chuck Groshmel, David Kendall, Kalpesh Oza, Brian Farlinger, Alan Cornwall. But Darian Taylor? She's still alive. And at first, she had to get used to the uncomfortable idea that she'd stay that way. She had been HIV positive for a decade before she went on those life-saving drugs. That's 10 years of assuming death was just around the corner. And one of the things that I did that was very significant was I bought a house. But you know, that idea of like a mortgage for 20 years and also the safety of having a house, you know? Like, I just felt safe. I felt emotionally safe in a house in a way that I never had in an apartment. And then I met someone and I had, like, a really, really, really incredible love affair around that time, too. And that was like, I felt like I was a character in a in a fairy tale. I literally felt like I was sleeping beauty being brought out of a you know, a sleep slash death by a kiss, you know. 
So those were two very powerful investments in the future. AIDS pandemic never ended. After 1996, after a life-saving treatment was discovered, things only got worse. The vast, vast majority of those 35 million people who have died of AIDS, they died in the 25 years after the Vancouver conference. Today, as the world's been hit with a second, simultaneous pandemic, there is so much we can learn from the fight against AIDS. Already we know that it will be the poor and the marginalized that will be hit the hardest. And already we can see that some people are going to argue that we should just let the virus run its course. That certain kinds of people are just expendable. In the early days of AIDS, it was gay men, Haitians, drug users, and sex workers that could be gotten rid of. Today, it's the elderly, the homeless, the disabled, the working poor begins to show whose lives are important and whose lives aren't important at all. But AIDS activists also gave us a roadmap for moving forward. I think people who've been through HIV are so much better prepared for what it takes to respond to a pandemic. It, it called upon us to really change the paradigms that we use for thinking our way through things. You know, safe sex, safe practices weren't effective because police officers were telling you to do this, or bylaw officers were going to fine you if you didn't do them. They were effective because they were built from the bottom up. Some of us will not make it through this second pandemic, but we need to fight as hard as we can to make sure the people infected with this new virus are given a chance to survive. We have to put the needs and concerns of the people most directly affected by this crisis at the center of our social response. I feel relatively optimistic about where, you know, the current COVID pandemic can lead us because I've seen, you know, all the amazingly brilliant reorganizing ways that HIV has, has acted as a catalyst for That's your episode of Commons for the week. This episode relied on work done by Gary Kinsman, and Silversides, Tom Warner, Tim McCaskill, CBC News, the AIDS Activist History Project, and many, many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, Arshi, at CanadaLandShow.com. This episode was produced by myself and Jordan Cornish with help from Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. And our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. You can support us and get ad-free podcasts by going to patreon.com slash CanadaLand.